I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you're very welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Maurice O'Keefe. And to mark this week's winter solstice, I've selected an interview taken from our archive that I did with Father Sean O'Ding and Father Brian Murphy, both from Glenstall Abbey, and sadly passed away now. And it was a cold December's day in 2005. We're here on a December's evening with the sun setting and a cold, uh, not frosty, but beautiful day, isn't it, Sean? Yes, indeed. And this um, beautiful sunshine... With the sun behind us at the south setting, at the southwest, and it reminds me specifically of the um, the winter solstice, and that leads me, I suppose, to Newgrange and the celebration of the winter solstice, which will take place uh, very soon, on twenty first of December, and th- this is the um, shortest day of the year. And in this country, we have this marvellous phenomenon, uh, unknown in, as far as I know in any other part of the world, where the rising sun at winter solstice shines right into the centre of this huge monumental tomb in Brunnebornia, in Newgrange. And this marks the um, <coughs> one of the high points of the astronomical year, the shortest day uh, of the year, and from that moment on, the sun, as it were, turns about, and the days become longer. But um, this particular phenomenon, you know, must have been of extraordinary significance to ancient peoples, because there seems to have been... um, a tremendous fear or terror that the sun would not turn and the days would get shorter and shorter and the sun would simply die out. And if the sun died out, um, the world would die with it. Uh, we can't exist without the, the heat of the sun to grow the crops and so on. There would be complete darkness. Uh, the animals couldn't survive. We couldn't survive ourselves. So this must have been a, coming up to the winter solstice 
as the um, sun, as the day got shorter and shorter, must have been a period of tremendous anxiety for ancient peoples. And then um, this phenomenon of Newgrange, when the rising sun on 21st of December went right into the tomb and next day and a few days after this there was a slight increase in the length of the day so that the, the people understood that the sun had recovered and life would begin again. Isn't it extraordinary how old this monument is? When we think about it, it's, it's much older than the Egyptian pyramids. It goes way back in, in time. Uh, the, the people understood the, uh, what was happening in the sky and uh, they understood the, that the, we, were, you know, we were coming to the end of the year and the beginning of a new year. And they specifically picked this place to build this monument because the sun shines right through the front entrance at sunrise that morning. That's right. Um, Newgrange is dated to about 3200 BC by uh, modern archaeologists and that does make it earlier than the um, date assigned to the pyramids. Now Lots of people think that Newgrange, or Brunnenboinger, was Celtic, but it wasn't really. You know, it was put up by, by the megalithic peoples, the big stone peoples, uh, who walked on these monumental stones thousands of years before the Celts came to Ireland. Because as far as we know, the general view is that the Celtic peoples only arrived in Ireland about 500 B.C., so the megalithic peoples were there for thousands of years before them. Now, one of the ideas would be that when the Celts arrived, they did conquer the country probably very slowly uh, and imposed their own language, uh, Gaelic, Celtic, on it. But they seemed to have intermarried with the megalithic people who were there before them. And the two cultures you know, blended. Because you have a curious, very curious phenomenon in uh, Borna that while the archaeologists know, we all know, that it is pre-Celtic. It was there thousands of years before the Celts. But on the other hand, uh, we have a lot of literature in Irish about Borna And it's inhabited by Celtic gods with Celtic names. Yes. Uh, things like, um, people like Undaga, the great god, and his son, Aengasog, and then Boing, the goddess. She is the, bo- the Boing, the white cow. She is the um, personification of the river, which um, flows right in front of Bona Boinga. And we have people called uh, like Alkmaar and Midder and Mononon MacLeod, the god of the sea, and Echner. All these people, all these are Celtic names. So it does seem that what happened was that this was a sacred, very sacred place uh, in the time of the megalithic people. And then the Celts came in and, as it were, took it over. In much the same way, for instance, as in some cathedrals in Ireland, um, the pre-Reformation cathedrals, they were once Catholic, but now they're Protestant. 
Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, a new group came along and took over, uh, and there was still remained sacred places, even under new occupation. Mm-hmm. Now, stone alignment is is everything uh, to the our ancestors of of the past. What about where we are here? This uh, wonderful garden is this. Is there uh, any particular reason why this garden is in this position? Has it anything to do with the... I don't think it has any particular reason to do with um, what Sean has been talking about uh, of the Celtic past. Although there is a Neolithic uh, remains near here, at Lishgera, or Gera, which Sean could talk about. But the reason that this garden is here, I think, is, is partly a reason of fortification that when the house was built at that time, at Cromwellian times, it was a settler, uh, a planter occupation. So the house had a bourne-like fortification around it, and one acre of this walled garden behind it added to the protection of the house. We know that the owner of the house um, received a charter from King Charles II of England to allow a deer park outside the walls of this garden. So it would have been a protection against any tribal Irish people possibly attacking it, but also it was a natural protection from the deer that might be around. So it's on this wonderful site overlooking on fairly high ground, not dramatically high, but uh, significantly high, and the house would have been outside the gate as we look at it, and the walls of the house were on the right and the left, and outside that was the deer park. But if I may continue on a little bit of what Sean was saying about the sun... I am always reminded in the garden of the old saying of how one is closer to God in a garden. I think the full thing goes, the kiss of the sun for pardon, the song of the birds for mirth. One is closer to God in a garden than anywhere else on earth. So you have this idea of the sun and the birds and the little ideas of pardon and mirth. It is a Christian thing really of forgiveness, pardon, forgiveness and happiness. And as we come up to Christmas, I think a, a garden and the, God's presence in the garden or in the world should give us that happiness and that forgiveness. Well, I think it's uh, that's, that was one of the, um, as it were, part of the mentality of ancient peoples that they saw themselves as part of nature. You know, not as against nature, as fighting against it, but perhaps sometimes taming it in the sense of when it got out of order to a certain extent, it had to be, as it were, tamed. You know, and if you come back even to the um, the, the, the stories of St. George and the dragon and so on. Now, generally you find that St. George or St. Michael didn't, or St. Patrick didn't actually kill the dragon. They tied a rope about him and took him out to the desert uh, or somewhere like that where he wouldn't <laughs> do any harm. It was taming the dragon, you yes. know. And I, I think the same uh, is true of nature, that people um, saw themselves as part of universal and cosmic phenomena, uh, part of a cosmic reality, really. Mm-hmm. Many of our customs now uh, also uh, take meaning from the past. I'm thinking of the Ren, and uh, it's also something uh, that's borrowed, in a way, from the past. Yes. Um, The the Ren is one of the most fascinating uh, customs which we have. And it was once very 
very, very widespread and was particularly associated with Carcassonne in France and very close to the, the Basque people. Now, some scholars think that um, it's one of the oldest things we have, that it goes right back to uh, the megalithic period, pre-Celtic. But in this country, this seems, uh, I believe this is about the only country in the world which has actually conserved it right to the present day. It used to be quite common uh, in France and England, especially the Isle of Man, uh, but now it seems to have died out everywhere except this country. <coughs> and the idea of hunting the rain <coughs> uh, does seem to go back to not only the agricultural peoples of the Neolithic period, but actually to the hunting peoples. Uh, the idea of um, the pre-agricultural period in which hunting animals, deers for food and so forth, uh, was very, very important. It was the, the livelihood of the people, while the, the women uh, picked berries and um, nuts, all that kind of thing, the, the hunter-gatherer period. So it does seem to be extraordinarily ancient. You know. Now, um, it's bound up uh, with the winter solstice, the St. Stephen's Day. Uh, he was caught in the falls. And um, this, of course, is the winter solstice. The few days makes no difference, just like uh, Christmas on the 25th makes no difference. It's still the 21st, the, the winter solstice. Now, um, uh, what happens is that uh, a group of people dress up in uh, straw clothes and masks and hats and so forth, uh, with musical instruments and all that, and they hunt the wren, and they kill a wren, the smallest little bird we have. And there's something very peculiar about the wren, because he's like a man. Um, he can't really fly. This is one of the peculiarities of the wren. He can only fly about a couple of feet high, he gets tired, so he's really a walker. And um, in Welsh they say that uh, the wren is a man, you know, and his his little nest is, is circular with a little door in it, like a house. So he's taught really to represent uh, mankind, you know. Now that's one one of the of the ideas. Now. We say the, the rain is the, the king of all birds. And the story is that the um, birds decided they wanted a king. And they decided that whoever could fly the highest would be king. Now, the poor little rain had no chance at all. But all the birds lined up <coughs> to take off see who could for the competition. And when nobody was looking, the little uh, wren came along and he jumped on the eagle's back. And all the, uh, all the birds took off. And naturally the eagle soared away up in the air higher than anybody else. And when he had reached as far as he could possibly go, the little wren took off from there. 
no, and he soared above everybody else, and the birds decided he was their king. So this is how he became king of the birds. Now, the, the, what happens in the, in the actual reality is that uh, the people dress up, as I said, in their masks and straw clothes and all that, and they have a holly bush, and they kill the wren. The wren must be killed. That's, that's yes, yes. part of the, the, the ritual. It's a ritual killing of the, of the wren. And they, they tie him on to the holly bush. And again, of course, the holly bush is uh, associated with the, the winter solstice. The berries are in, are in bloom, are in uh, rout at that, at that stage. And he can also be carried in a little uh, ornamental box. And you find these boxes, wren boxes, in the museums. You know, and um, so anyway, he's he's carried along then from house to house, and this is really a funeral procession. It's the burial of the king. Is that right? Yeah, yes. and the 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 rhyme then is um, the rand the rand the king of all birds. On Saint Stephen's Day, he was caught in the falls. Although he is little, his family is great. Rise up, good lady, and give us a trace. So up with the kettle and down with the pan, give us some money to bury the ran. And then you have the good wishes for the year. Uh, um, happy Christmas and a happy new year, uh, which your um, park is full of money and your cellar full of beer. <laughs> now, if you analyse the the rhyme, you know, you can su subject it to to critical analysis. The rand, the rand, the king of all birds, where we explain the idea of the king. Saint Stephen's Day, he was caught in the fuzz. That represents the winter solstice. Uh, although his his little his family is great, that's the idea of fertility, because he's very small but he's very fertile. Um, he's lots of chickens, all that, you know. Yes, this I represents the fertility yes. of the yeah. earth, you know. And although he's in his family, and and then you have the um, give us some money to bury the wren. So it's a funeral procession. Now a doctoral thesis has been done quite recently on this by by um, a, a, a French woman. Um, uh, what's her name? Sylvie Sylvie Muller, Doctor Sylvie Muller. And she examined this carefully. She went through all the, the documents which we have from the Folklore Commission. And she managed to kind of find out what, is, what exactly is the thinking behind all this. It's the most ancient rise we have. And it's fundamentally, fundamentally, um, Doreen stands for mankind. He is the king. He's not only the king of the birds, but he's the king of mankind. And there are very ancient traditions that at the end of the year, after a set number of years, maybe seven years or nine years, the king was actually put to death. And this was done at the winter solstice. You know, his mm, time yes. was up yeah. and his... Uh, and the fertility of land depended on the king. And if if, if he were weakening, then you had to put in another king. The, the old, it's the old thing of the king is dead, long live the king. See? So um, the king actually 
the, the, the wren stands for the king, in other words, mankind. And the point behind it all is the king representing his people is sacrificed because everything we have comes from nature. Now the time comes when you have to give back to nature, as it were, acknowledge the source from which everything came. You know? And this is what we call sacrifice. And then if sacrifice is made, if, if you acknowledge that everything has come from nature, nature in turn will be generous and will give you back more. Pushing back into the land or pushing yeah, back. Something, exactly. It's, it's like that. It goes round and round in a cycle. Um, you give, nature takes, the nature gives back. And here, with the sun coming right through, uh, it's like, it's no, like it's the passage in Newgrange. It's, it's like just, the passage in Newgrange. It's up the, going up the steps to the second yeah. terrace of the garden. Well, now we're on the second terrace, and um, I told you of the age of the garden. But uh, what I have done recently is to put in a Bible garden. That's the plants and herbs and trees named in the Bible. I made a start on this terrace, but the main one is on the terrace above. And if I just connect a few thoughts with what Sean has been saying, we mentioned about God's presence in the garden in a sort of general way, the presence. But in a strange way, if one um, reads any scripture at all, and I had to read a fair bit when I was doing this Bible work, one becomes aware immediately that God's revelation to man is actually centered on gardens. So the creation story of mankind, which relates to what Sean has been talking about, nature, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus all take place in gardens. So some people would dismiss it as chance, but in a way I think it's providential, this, this revelation of God's special presence in a garden. We'll walk up to the next terrace. Yeah, we go to the, the next terrace. Yes. The next terrace is, is um, the first one I made more explicitly biblical. The one we're leaving, I do have vegetables and fruit trees, which um, I could elaborate on a bit, but uh, for example, the vegetables, when the Jews were starving in the desert, they complained to Moses and wanted leeks, onions, garlic, melons and cucumbers. So you, you, on that theme, for people that are interested in gardens, well actually I have been for Kerry, this goes out in Kerry, I know, the Inch, St. Joseph's Church in Inch. I did help them with their millennium garden and they've created a very fine Bible garden down there. But there's a lot of scope in, in those particular things. On this particular terrace, I laid it out oh, about 15 years ago and it reflects a, a, to some extent on what... Uh, Sean has been saying, I laid it out in these rectangular squares to replicate the old monastery gardens where they would have had a particular herb in each square and the herbs near the kitchen would be for eating and the herbs near the infirmary would be for curing people. And I put a little walk around it with a, like a maze effect with a, a space in the centre to try and replicate the old labyrinth or maze of, of Celtic or maybe even pre-Celtic times, which Christians did develop in the maze on the floor of Chartres Cathedral. That you would go around the, the, may, the floor uh, at different stations and end up and encounter, if you like, Christ in the centre. And that, I know from Sean's teaching or his uh, talking, 
would possibly have been a Celtic goddess, an encounter with the goddess. But in this thing, the particular thing I think for Christmas to make mention of, in one of the beds I have, um, now it would just be the remains of barley, which may not seem uh, a very direct connection with Christmas, but the connection is this. Um, the Ruth, the Book of Ruth, there's the story which conveys certain realities of man's relationship with God in it and, and some historical detail of Naomi, the Jewish woman, going with her husband and two sons to Moab. And they, the, the two sons marry, then they die, and at the end of the saga we've got Ruth and Naomi left and Ruth returns with, with Naomi to Bethlehem. And the people, she's starving, she's they're in a bad way. And so Ruth starts gleaning in a barley field. She promises Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will God lodge. Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. So that's... Uh, what we that's what we have as the story you see we'll continue yeah. we'll walk but, down um, as uh, <coughs> Biden was talking about herbs herb gardens medieval monsters and so forth now there's actually a story from <coughs> from early Ireland about a herb garden but it was really it wasn't really uh, specifically about the garden it was to um, <coughs> describe what was known as the fear flocher. Now, it's impossible to translate uh, the words fear flocher. Uh, it's something like the total honesty of the king. The king had to be above corruption. An Irish king had to have certain qualities. One of the, the most important one was the fear flocher. He had to be absolutely honest, uh, fair play to everybody, um, all that, all that kind of thing. Now, there is a story uh, about this um, about this, this woman who had a herb garden. And herb gardens were, were very important in those days and very expensive because um, the Celtic women used herbs not only for medicine but for dyeing clothes and also for adorning themselves. They, they used herbs for their eyebrows and their toenails and fingers, all that kind of thing, you know. It was very elaborate. They had much the same way as women use cosmetics today. But the herb gardens were very important and expensive. And... Um, now, according to the story, this woman had a herb garden and there was another woman living near her who had sheep. And this woman's sheep jumped over the wall and they ate up all the herbs <laughs> of the woman. Yes. And the, the woman um, came to court to complain. And the king, one of the one of the, the the king's duties was to preside as a judge in a court of law. And um, she told a story that her herbs had been eaten up by this woman's sheep. And the king made a judgment. He said the sheep will have to be given to the woman, forfeited, given mm. over as payment for the loss of her garden. And then some young man in was in the court and he stood up and said 
or king, you've made a wrong judgment, you know? So <laughs> there was dead silence, <laughs> naturally. <laughs> and um, the, the king was uh, Louis, Louis Macron was named the king. So this young man explained <coughs> that the herbs would grow again and the wool of the sheep would grow again. So what should be done is the king, uh, the sheep should be um, shorn and the wool given in compensation to the woman who had lost her <laughs> herb garden. And everybody recognised that this was the true judgment and the king had to resign. <laughs> Stood down. He had broken, oh, he had broken the fear flutter. You know? Yes, yes, yes. Does it, it, it's a, uh, a story that helps to understand yes. and, and uh, make sense out of the out of the many riddles and and uh, yes. situations yeah. that happen. Um, yeah. There was uh, a, a, the, I'm just thinking of the Brehen laws of our ancestors. There was a great uh, they had great rules and and uh, it kept in many cases uh, it, it provided. Um, uh, a better type of lifestyle for many people. They were able to to live their lives. Um, yes, it was very strong in compensation, compensation for um, some some harm done to somebody or some injury suffered by somebody. You know, and the rights of people. The rights of people. Yeah, uh, it's a very difficult subject. Brehendal is extremely difficult. You know, and very few people um, are really have any expertise in them, you know, apart from people like ben, Professor Binch and those. Very few, you know, but it was um, highly codified and highly sophisticated. Now, it was so detailed that um, commentators wonder, really, uh, was it possible in practice to put all these things into effect. Like, for instance, the payment of, um, of dues to the local king. Uh, in great detail, so many bags of corn, so many cloaks, so many swords, you know, so many bags of barley, and so many calves. Uh, in practice, it was very hard to put all <laughs> the things into effect. And uh, commoners kind of think, well, uh, um, the local king... Um, he took what he got. What he, got. <laughs> he was very happy to get as much as he could. You see. <laughs> Whatever about the law. <laughs> Is it, it, sorry, in, term, in terms of the herbs generally, I've, there's not such a great story as Sean has given there, but there's a, there's a lovely little saying from Pro Proverbs, better a meal with bitter herbs and love in it than a meal with a fattened calf and hatred in the heart. <laughs> so people can think of that at Christmas, that, but obviously it would be desirable if you could have a meal with a fattened calf or a fattened turkey and love in it. That would be better possibly than a meal with bitter herbs. <laughs> the sun is just is gone from us and it's getting quite cool now, so... We'll, we'll walk towards the gate of the garden and we'll, we'll leave the garden and head back. And by the way, just where the sun is setting, straight on there, um, that is Liscoura. Uh, that is a little hill down there, a hill, uh, and with a list on top of it, you know, a circular mm -hmm. list. And they think that that was the um, fortress of the local king. 
Is that right? Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes. This, this so an important uh, place. It is an important place, yeah. And that he was, he would have been a kind of sub-king of the King of Cashel. And is that the local people would have paid their their dues uh, to him, uh, so many sheep per year, so many bags of corn, and so forth. But um, you see, there to 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 say something about about um, we have, as Brian mentioned, there we have this um, O antiphon. These are kind of um, very short little prayers which are sung before the the Magnificat at Vespers uh, coming up to the winter solstice, you know, coming up to Christmas at the end of the, the Advent season. And um, they go back about a thousand years. Now, there's one very significant one for the 21st of December, the winter solstice itself. And some like O Orion's, uh, the, the, the Latin original, O Orion's splendor luces eterne et sal justitiae, vene et illumina sedentes in tenebris et umbra martis. Um, o Orion's, O rising sun, is addressed to Christ as the rising sun, O rising sun, splendor luces eterne et sal justitiae, um, splendor of eternal light and uh, and son of justice, veni et illumina, come and light up sedentes and tenebris et umbra martis, those who are sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. Now the curious thing, awfully curious thing is, this is the very time when the sun is going in into the tomb, yes, it's, 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 falling on the ashes of the dead in Ukraine. My goodness, yes, yes. Christian awareness. So there's uh, it, certainly Christian awareness there of of a very ancient custom yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you see, I, I have a theory. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> uh, if we are talking about Bruno Boinger, uh, you see, it's it's all theories because we have no manuscripts. No, we no way of really telling. But no. Yeah. No. And it is full of symbols, you know, and a symbol can mean this, and it can mean that, and it can mean something else. But Sean, all the clues are there. Yeah, the, the clues. So, so we're like, the, I, actually I was saying that to students the other day, that we're all like detectives uh, going along with our magnifying glass looking for clues, you know. Mm. Now, one of the, the things about Brunner Boeing is that... <coughs> we have this the, the story, you, you, know, you know the story, Etoriot Diermedag Skrange, Diermedag Skrange, most people learned that at school, about uh, Diermed or Odinge, who eloped with Skrange, the, the king, Sjön Bekul's man, a woman. Now, um, it's, a, it's very, now, the manuscript which we have is very, very late, it's only 15th or 16th century, but we know from other sources that this is quite an old story. It was there a long time before it was written down. And it has some archaic features. But anyway, one of the archaic features about it is <coughs> that Dermot Ding, the great hero, <coughs> is supposed to have the same length of life as this wild boar, a turk, 
uh, Fjorn Gulben, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the magic boar of uh, Ben Gulben. Can't you say? say. Uh, the, in other words, they're going, they're, they're both going to die at the same time. And the, um, so, uh, Dermot hunts the boar, and the boar kills him. He kills Dermot. But in his dying moments, he, happen, he hits the, the boar in the forehead with the remains of his sword, and he kills the boar. So both and die together. Yes, you know? yes. Now, the boar probably represents uh, winter. And then a curious thing happens. Uh, it is said, for instance, in the manuscript, the manuscript says um, that this happened on Ehegernok den Vleen. On Ehegernok den Vleen. The last night of the year. Now, you could argue that this is probably Ehehauna, um, Halloween if they were used in the insular calendar. But it may well be that they were using the Brunoborne calendar, which would make it the winter solstice. See? So he was killed yes, on the night good, before yeah. the winter solstice. <clears throat> yeah. Now, so anyway, um, himself and the boar are lying there dead. <laughs> and Angus Og, the god of the Boyne, comes along, the, the god uh, who owns Brunoborne, Newgrange, comes along and he arranges the funeral of Dermot. He puts him in to a golden coffin and off they go, they take his body to Brunoborne. Now, um, and then he makes, the, the Engesow, the god of the Boyne, makes this statement. He says, I can't bring him back to life. In other words, I can't bring him back to normal life. But I will give him an aerial soul, a kind of spiritual soul in which he will speak to me every day. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what is meant there is that Angus Hogg, uh, the god, was going to lift this great hero up into the company of the ancestors, uh, the great, the Tuchadadon, the great Celtic gods. In other words, he was going to be canonized. Yes. Just the same way as, the, as the, the, the Catholic Church takes some very uh, holy persons, St. Teresa and so forth, and uh, not the ordinary person, but very extraordinary heroes of the faith, and lifts them up into a supernatural world among the saints and the angels. In the same way, he's going to take the hero, Dermod, and take him up to a, a different dimension. Now, all this happened on the night before the winter solstice. <laughs> he was born off in the golden coffin to Bruno Boinger. Now, suppose then that they cremated Dermot, took his ashes into the, the middle of the mound, of the tomb, and next day the rising sun shone down in through the channel and rise into the ashes of Dermot. In other words, lifting him up to a new dimension. And he would be reborn with the new sun of the next day. 
you know. So I, I think that one of the problems of Brunner Boringer was that it was a place for making ancestors. It was a kind of canonization centre, you know, for the pagans. That's very interesting, you yes know, indeed. Oh. And it would only, uh, only, um, only be a matter for very few people. Um, just like the, the ordinary person is, mm. is, is not a saint, it's very few people like St. Therese, uh, heroes, are taken up mm. and they're, they're made official saints. In the same way, it was only pe people like great heroes would uh, be, ta would, be made would, ancestors. Would get that far yes. in and, yes. and be taken up. Yes. And then they <coughs> would become, the ancestors had power. People, you know, power of the fertility of the land and uh, peace and war, all that kind of thing. So people could come to Nabonia as a great sanctuary and pray to people like Dermot Odinga, you know, for the fertility of the land, for health and peace and prosperity and all that. So it would be a great, as it were, cathedral with the ancestors having tremendous power. And I, I think myself, this really one of the meanings of all these megalithic tombs. You see them up halfway up a hill, you know, like the power of the ancestors comes down the hill, flows down the hill, and onto the agricultural land below to make the, the corn ripen. Uh, you see, um, very few people are buried in Brunaboringa, are in, in these monuments, only a few. They, they were in graveyards, you know, in our no. sense, not everybody was. It will only be very um, extraordinary uh, a people. King or uh, yes. somebody of great... Or the founding fathers, people who first came to this locality, cut down the trees and turned it into agricultural land. These would be the founding fathers of a community, yeah. you know. Father Brian Murphy and <laughs> Dr. Sean O'Ding. I know you're both frozen and I know that we're very near the Abbey. So thank you. Thank you so much. We've come to the end of this week's podcast and you can find Father Sean O'Ding and Father Brian Murphy on our website. That's irishlifeandlore.com. My name is Maurice O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you another podcast the next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.